You are listening to John DeYard's Life Spa, your premier source for health news in Ayurveda, where modern science meets ancient wisdom. Hi, everyone. Welcome to our podcast tonight. Uh, the title of this podcast is, Is Gluten the Root Cause of Your Health Concerns? And before I dig into this topic, and I have so much to talk to you about today, I want to kind of give you an overview of, of gluten and and this whole craziness about wheat and the $16 billion a year industry that we're sort of up against. I want to talk about that. But I also want to take you places where I haven't taken you before in many of my talks or discussions on, um, on eat wheat. And that is how to troubleshoot your digestion, how to do some repair for that. So we'll get into that in a minute. Uh, before I get started, though, I want to talk about some really exciting stuff coming your way. Recently, I just did an interview with the author of the book Grain Brain, the best-selling book, kind of the anti-wheat book Grain Brain by Dr. David Perlmutter, who's an old friend of mine. And David and I had a fantastic debate, debating the science on both sides of the aisle. Is wheat good or is wheat bad? And it was sort of the, the Eat Wheat, which is my new book that comes out tomorrow, actually officially comes out tomorrow. It was the Eat Wheat versus Grain Brain. And if you want to watch that debate for free, which is really good, I got to tell you. Um, you can go to my website, right on the homepage, there's a banner there, which is the Eat Wheat versus Grain Brain Debate. And uh, share this with your friends because, like I said, we have a $16 billion a year industry saying wheat is bad. And I've got over 600 scientific references here suggesting that wheat is actually quite beneficial for you. We're going to talk about all that, how and why tonight. But a lot of that gets blown out in this debate with Dr. David Perlmutter, which is just phenomenal. Super grateful for him to be willing to have this platform and, and really, you know, just hammer it out between two sides of this very, very uh, controversial aisle. Super good, really great information. Uh, also, like I said, this book, Eat Week, comes out in bookstores tomorrow. Like, I'm so excited. You may know, we've been talking about it for a while. The ebook has been out for a while, but the actual hardcover of the book itself comes out tomorrow in bookstores. So... Hopefully you all run to your bookstore and get that. And, and uh, you know, I really look at this as like food freedom. You know, how many years have they been taking foods out of our diet? They took high, they took cholesterol, saturated fats, butter. They started feeding us with marjoram. Eggs were bad. You know, everything along the way has been bad, 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 bad. And we find out that they're actually not so bad after all. So eat wheat is sort of a, a, making a stand saying, wait a minute. Let's stop treating the symptoms and get to the cause. And that's what I want to talk about in tonight's podcast, how to actually do that and troubleshoot that with you individually. Uh, so that's super, hopefully super exciting. Um, in addition to that, um, the next podcast on February 6th, which is an interview with a wheat researcher who did tons of research on ancient wheat kamut and found really amazing difference between ancient wheat and modern refined wheat. And you can't miss this, this podcast where you really talk about, talk to the actual scientists. Because a lot of stuff we hear in the papers and the articles that are written that are anti-wheat, you know, sort of cherry pick the science a little bit. And, and I think that's something we need to look at deeply. And I'm going to get into that tonight. So welcome to this podcast. Thank you for joining me. And uh, <clears throat> here we go. Um, okay. Well, you know, many of you know, if you heard me talk about that wheat uh, has been around for a long time. They found gluten in the teeth of ancient humans, C3 grains in the teeth of ancient humans 3.4 to 4 million years ago, way before humans were here. 
Um, and Africa was literally covered with grasslands, okay, covered with grasslands, full of wheat and barley, which has gluten in it. The researchers found that they could actually gather enough wheat berries to feed them for an entire day in just two hours. You know, sitting in some grass eating wheat berries is not a bad job, way easier than trying to chase a lion or hunt down a little woolly mammoth, which is probably pretty difficult, particularly early humans didn't have the tools to fight or have weapons to hunt very well. Hunting didn't start, and we didn't start eating our own meat, according to, you know, most agree, around 500,000 years ago. We've been eating wheat for 3.4 million years ago. Hard to argue that science. I know you've been told we've only been eating wheat for 10,000 years. It's just, I'm sorry, it's just simply not true. Um, and at, why wouldn't we eat wheat, okay? So, because it was everywhere, <clears throat> and barley was everywhere, and it had loads of gluten in it. And that ancient, ancient, ancient wheat had a heck of a lot more protein in it than the modern wheat we eat today. So the original wheat that everybody says was much, much better had way more, sometimes up to twice as much protein as the, uh, as the ancient or, or as the modern wheat did. So sort of interesting, right? So let's fast forward to 12,000 years ago. This is when everybody says, this is when we started domesticating our own wheat, and this is when all the problems began, right? Okay, so what they did, and this makes sense, right? If, uh, if you were starting to domesticate your own wheat, wheat berries were generally very, very small, hard to get off the, the, the stalk. And when they would thresh the wheat and bang it on the ground, the wheat berries would fall off, right? That's how they did it. So they figured that they wanted the berry to be bigger and fall off the stalk easier. So when they selected for grains that were bigger and fell off the stalk easier, they were selecting for wheat that had significantly more starch and significantly less protein, therefore less gluten. So the original domestication of wheat actually selected for less gluten and more starch. And, and I'm a big believer that this whole thing should be called sugar belly, not wheat belly, okay? So that's what they did originally when they first selected or domesticated wheat. They selected it for, uh, for more starch and less sugar. Now, in addition to that, they did studies when they taught ancient wheat like Kamut, for example, and they found that the Kamut had twice as much gluten and the gelatinous, which are the bad boys, the, bad, the, 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 the ones that cause all the problems in wheat, supposedly, um, twice as much as modern wheat strains did. And they found out that, the, that when people ate the ancient wheat, it had twice the reduction of inflammation, and it lowered blood sugar, and it lowered cholesterol levels. So here again, we have an interesting phenomenon. We have the ancient wheat, which has twice as much gluten, but reduced inflammation, blood sugar, and cholesterol by two times. So how could the, if gluten was so bad and the gloves were so bad, how could the gluten actually be, with the grain with twice as much gluten, actually be so much better for our health? So again, we started to wonder, could it really be the gluten? Is that really the issue that we're looking at here? Okay. Then they found that, that, um, that certain wheats like, uh, like rye was a, gra a, a grain that would be very easy on your blood sugar. Spelt was very low in phytic acids. Uh, sourdough bread, uh, which was, takes about three days to bake it. Um, would actually render the gluten, the, the bread gluten-free in, in many, many studies. 
Uh, and they actually gave that bread to people who were celiac in some studies in Italy, and those people didn't have any intestinal inflammation. So when you sprout or soak your grains or sourdough or ferment your grains, that process helps break down the anti-nutrients on the grain, the glutens uh, or the, 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 lactic, the, lect, the lectins and the phytic acids, which are generally a little bit harder to digest. Now, I've written some articles that are coming out recently that may disturb you. Before I tell you how disturbing they are, I want to let you know that I, that I, want, you to, I want you to understand, and I write it and I talk about this in the book so much, I get that when you eat wheat, people feel bad. I'm not dumb, okay? I've been in this, I've been practicing master medicine for, since 1984, okay? And when people come in with chronic fatigue and anxiety and depression and, and food intolerances and allergies and hives and rashes, and candida things, issues, Epstein-Barr virus. The first thing we would do way back then was give them probiotics and take them off of wheat and dairy. And they would get better. But they'd get better for like a short period of time. And then the problems would come back. you say, well, get off of red meat. And they get better for a short period of time, and then the problems would come back. Then they would trend to becoming, you know, eating lighter, easier to digest foods, becoming a vegetarian or a vegan or a raw foodist. And in a sense, if those diets... I think there's, I have nothing wrong against any of those diets, but a lot of people who go to those diets go to them because they're not digesting harder to digest foods well. And we keep kicking the can down the road, keep kicking the real problem down the road, never addressing the real problem. And the real problem is our inability to digest hard to digest foods. And what the science is showing is that these hard to digest foods are really important for us. And when you think about it logically, you've been eating wheat for 3.4 to 4 million years now. It's a long time. And that maybe we have evolved to utilize them in ways way above and beyond just getting nutritional value from the meat, from the, from the, uh, from the wheat. The anthropologists will tell you that we've been eating poisonous foods for millions of years. You know, tomatoes, potatoes were absolutely poisonous in the 1800s. And we hybridized them to be able to, so we can tolerate them now. Back when we first domesticated wheat, we were hybridizing food. Every single food we eat today has been hybridized, just like wheat's been hybridized, just the same exact way. No real difference. Studies have shown, 19-year studies in the University of Saskatchewan have measured ancient wheat versus modern wheat and looked at the genetics, and they found no differences between these two different foods, so it didn't really make any sense. So, the, so, so these hard-to-digest foods in certain studies have found that they actually are very, very important for our immune system. There are microbes in our mouth, esophagus, small, large intestine, and stomach that are specifically designed to make enzymes to help us break down gluten. And they're hard to digest portions of gluten, the gluttons, very, very important. Now, there's a handful of things I'll talk about that can break down those bugs that make those microbes, that make those enzymes that help us digest those foods. And those are pesticides, environmental pollutants, and processed foods. We're going to talk about those three. But before I go there, I want to talk to you about how these hard-to-digest foods, the anti-nutrients on grains and nuts and seeds, are very beneficial for us. And the studies show that people who are gluten-free had four times as much mercury in their blood as people who actually ate wheat. People who were gluten-free had significantly less good bacteria 
and significantly more, significantly less good bacteria and significantly more bad bacteria than people who ate wheat. In another study, they found that people who were gluten-free had significantly less killer T cells of measure for immunity than people who actually ate wheat. So this is really disturbing because, you know, I would always say, hey, you know, it's not whether you eat wheat or not, it's not really the issue. The issue is poor digestion, which affects your digestion, and I still believe that. But now we're beginning to see science saying that wheat and the grains that we've been eating for 3.4 million years might be a really bad idea for us to get rid of. When we got rid of cholesterol in our diet in 1960, replacing it with processed foods and bleached, deodorized, boiled fats that we can't digest, that is directly linked to diabetes, the, obese, the, the epidemic of diabetes, obesity levels that are one-third of the population, depression, and the global breakdown of digestion. We're digging out of those concerns 60 years later. And now we're saying, let's get all the grains out of our diet. Get the wheat out of our diet. It's a problem. And now we're seeing science saying, that might not be such a good idea. We sterilize our environment with antibacterial everything. We take all the hard to digest foods out of our diet. We can't do it like wheat. And what happens is our immune system is compromised. That there's science, it's called the hygiene hypothesis, that says that these hard to digest foods provide irritants to the intestinal skin to trigger an immune response where 80% of your immune system lives inside your intestinal tract, right? So it's pretty amazing that we can just say, ah, don't eat wheat, don't eat grains, they're really hard for you. The anthropologists will tell you that the Paleolithic people did not just eat meat and vegetables. They had grains and tubers and many, many carbohydrates, 45, up to 45% of their diet as carbohydrates, not just meat and vegetables, okay? So there's nothing... According to, not, I'm not saying this, anthropologists, Harvard anthropologists say there's nothing paleo about the paleo diet. The hygiene hypothesis includes um, uh, this concept of the Amish kids who have the lowest asthma rates on the planet. They, have, they run barefoot in the barns, and they have cows as pets, and they have all these, you know, they have uh, this lowest rates of asthma on the planet. The Hutterites, which are also all Mennonite-type farmers who became urbanized and have sterile farms now, have the highest rates of asthma. So the genetics were the same. One group had the highest rates of asthma, one group had the lowest rates. When they measured the dust in the barns, they found that the dust provided irritation to the respiratory tract of these Amish kids, and it triggered an immune response against asthma, and they didn't get asthma, suggesting that hard-to-digest irritants in our foods, which we've been eating for millions of years, are irritants and immune stimulants for us. We have one taste, bud, for sweet. You have over 300 for the taste of bitter. Anything sweet from mother's milk, that first taste, was darn good, and we've been seeking out that sweet taste for millions and millions of years. We didn't need any more taste buds for sweet because one was all we needed. It was good. Bitter taste can kill you or heal you. And we have over 300 taste buds to discern whether that bitter taste is going to, where spinach is going to heal you or maybe a, a nightshade would kill you. The tomatines and in tomatoes or the solanines and potatoes could kill you. So we have these taste buds that hopefully try to discern that. I'm not really very good at it to this point. At least we don't have that skill. But the taste buds are there. We haven't needed that skill. So we've been navigating around hard to digest foods that are in a way, in small amounts, poisonous. And we take out one aspect of those foods, they're poisonous. 
Put the whole thing together, we eat them fine, no problem, because the body uses those poisonous foods. In many cases, we evolved to use them as immune stimulants. Similarly, with the lectins in wheat and the phytic acids in wheat, they have been shown to support the reduction of colon cancer and other cancers as well. They've shown to be extremely beneficial in so many studies. And all you hear about is all the studies say they're really bad for you. We can get into that. And I write about that in my book, and I show the studies on both sides of the aisle. You know, phytic acids, for example, which are anti-nutrients on wheat, they are supposedly, they block the mineral absorption and calcium and zinc and magnesium. You don't get the minerals you need. However, studies show that people actually do a high-grain diet, most phytic acids, they have the lowest rates of osteoporosis. Iron, a, a mineral that they say is blocked by phytic acids, people, studies have shown people actually eat more wheat, a higher phytic acid diet, have four times as much uh, iron in their blood than people who actually eat wheat or, 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 or don't eat wheat. So, so somehow... We have evolved to even though, yes, the phytic acids on one study in an isolated instance will block certain things, but the body's not figured out a way to adapt around that and get the iron and the minerals it needs in study after study after study. So again, we just take cherry pick a piece of science and say this is a problem. We find out that's not really, uh, not really the case. It's not really accurate because we're not looking at the whole. We're just taking one part and measuring the part and then calling, you know, and then, and then uh, uh, you know, sort of throwing the baby out with the bathwater and not looking at the entire puzzle which is really important. So that's sort of really interesting, right? Taking these grains out of our diet and maybe they're really important for us. And like I said, we sterilize our diet and our environment and we end up with a sterile, sterile body. And is that really healthy for us? With the microbiome, we know it's not. Everybody, all the signs are saying, eat dirt, don't wash as much and get more bugs in your system, get more diversity because that's really critically important. And weed has been shown to be a very important and natural prebiotic. Wheat is broken down in your stomach, esophagus, stomach, mouth, esophagus, stomach, small and large intestine. And there's, which is really interesting, I think, there are, uh, there are microbes in your mouth <coughs> that help break down these, uh, the gluten along the way. And in the large intestine, the, the, the gluten that makes it all the way through the large intestine, there's glutenases that actually convert the wheat and the gluten into short-chain fatty acids like butyric acid that are specifically designed to boost immunity and 80% of your immunity is right there, 70 to 80%. It feeds all the microbes in your gut. So it feeds the cells of your colon wall in a, in a absolutely a majority of the cells of the colon wall use butyric acid or short-chain fatty acids that, and that are fed to us that are supported by wheat and the breakdown of wheat. You can't argue with that science. The fiber in wheat, oh my gosh, is just so incredibly beneficial for your blood sugar and for your for obesity levels. There's study after study after study that says a whole wheat, not refined wheat, not processed wheat, but a whole wheat will lower the risk of type 2 diabetes, will help you lose weight. Diets like the Mind Diet and the Mediterranean Diet, which include three servings of whole grains, including a whole wheat a day, reduce the risk of Alzheimer's by 53% in one study and 54% in another. It's a lot of reductions, a lot of protection that you would get from some of these really important diets that include whole grains. So, so um, there's so much science over there, but a lot of studies have taken refined wheat and found that it has a high glycemic index. And because it has a high glycemic index, they say it acts like sugar. And therefore, because it acts like sugar, 
It therefore is bad for obesity. It's therefore bad for diabetes. It's therefore bad for cognitive function. Well, that's like a misinterpretation of the science because whole grains actually have a low glycemic index that don't do anything like that. It's processed foods that are the culprit. They did a study with processed foods and they found that processed foods have, uh, when people eat them, they increase the risk of what's called metabolic syndrome by 141%, which means that we're talking about high blood sugar, high blood pressure, belly fat, um, what else? High cholesterol, low good cholesterols, and um, high triglycerides. So these are all, these are all, um, hang on one second, it's gonna lower this thing, bugging me. All right, and high cholesterol. And, they, and so that processed foods, increased the risk of those conditions by 141%. In the same exact study, people ate whole grains and no processed foods, and they reduced the risk of, and whole wheat, by the way, and they reduced the risk of metabolic syndrome by 38%. Okay, now, so, so far, here's what we know. If you wanna start eating wheat again, we have to get rid of the processed foods. For sure. The replacement fats, when it's the cholesterol out of our diet, were these refined fats that congest our liver and our gallbladder. And that's very, very bad. And that is the kingpin of digestion. The pesticides on your foods, the pesticides, studies with farmers who breathe in pesticides, literally eradicate microbes in the mouth that are specific for helping us digest all kinds of foods. Pesticides on our food have been killing and breaking down our, our, our microbes, which make the enzymes. Certain pesticides like Roundup that are on many, many foods are, are, are literally cause irritation and inflammation of the intestinal wall and compromise our ability to digest, hard to digest proteins like gluten. So organic foods, for the most part, there's gonna be some, some sprays that fly over into organic fields and all that. But for the most part, organic foods are really important. We don't think that they're that important, but they are. And we try to eat as much organic, but we really have to realize that, that a lot of us have a global breakdown of our digestive system. So if you can't eat wheat today and you once were able to, you were able to eat fried foods when you were a kid, but now you can't. You have constipation, gas, bloating, heartburn, indigestion, all these issues. Your ring, ring is getting tight on your fingers. You swell, you break out. When you menstruate, your breasts swell, become tender, your joints hurt, you ache, you feel tired, brain fog, lethargic, don't sleep well at night. These all stem from poor digestion, and that can be repaired. But if you're like, you got a flat tire, you got to put a jacket on the car, raise the tire off, take the bad tire off, and put a good tire on. So we got to you know, instead of take the stress off of your system for a little while while we repair your digestion. So in the meantime, yeah, let's get off some of the hard to digest stuff like the wheat and the dairy and, and, and other foods like lots of red meat and things like that and start eating a cleaner whole food diet, non-processed food diet, and begin to, 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 to rebuild and strengthen your digestion. Organic foods, non-processed foods, the things we can't get around the very best we can is the 400 billion pounds of toxic chemicals dumped in the American environment every single year. 62 million of them are cancer-causing. Mercury from the coal mine plumes that cover all America lace mercury on every organic vegetable. You can't wash it off, right? So that's a problem, I think. Um, but you need a good digestive system, which is directly linked to your ability to detoxify mercury, to be able to pull that off. 
If your digestive system has gone weak on you because of processed foods and pesticides in your foods, then and the mercury on the organic vegetables can't be digested, then that fatty mercury is going to find its way into your liver, into your blood, into your fat, and into your brain. And we're not going to be able to detoxify it. In 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now, we have real problems. Now, taking wheat out of your diet because you can't digest wheat very well and you feel better, great. But what about the mercury on the organic vegetables? You have to digest that. If you can't eat wheat and you once were, you're not digesting the mercury. You're processing it into your liver, to your blood, to your fat, to your brain. And that may cause problems, not today, not tomorrow, but in 10, 20 years. And I'm sort of done kicking the ball down the road. Let's dig in and take step-by-step approaches to reboot digestion. That's what I do in Eat Wheat, is I take you step-by-step through a troubleshooting process to find out what part of your digestion is broken. And that's sort of what I want to I want to play around with today a little bit is, 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 uh, is exactly that, is this process of uh, rebooting your digestion, if I can. Um, I'm just thinking, is there anything else that, uh, that I might have missed? A couple of things um, before I dive into the troubleshooting of your digestion, okay? Studies have measured the difference between whole wheat and refined wheat, and they found that whole wheat actually repairs the intestinal wall, reduces the symptoms of irritable bowel syndrome, the frequency of irritable bowel syndrome pain, and gas and bloating, significantly compared to refined wheat. Another study comparing whole wheat versus refined wheat, they showed that actually the whole wheat repaired the intestinal wall, the leaky gut syndrome. It helped make the intestinal skin a better protective barrier for wheat and other hard to digest things. Okay, so very, very important. A lot of uh, researchers, uh, the author of um, uh, Wheat Belly, and I have invited to have a debate with him as well, Dr. Davis. I have had a debate with Dr. Joe Mercola, who's another anti-wheat guy, um, and we had a great debate, uh, and that has happened, and that will be coming. If you will stay tuned to my, my newsletters, you'll see that link to that debate, which is really, really great, and you start seeing that... Um, in fact, a lot of these experts are sort of softening their position on wheat. Dr. Perlmutter used to say all grains are bad, and now he's saying only wheat's bad. Dr. Mercola used to say all wheat and all grains are bad. Now he's saying once you learn how to burn fat, you can reintroduce wheat back into your diet. These are the experts who, you know, who are now softening their position, so it's pretty cool. The people don't know that yet. And I'm a big believer, Dr. Mercola says it exactly like I say it, that we have to become good fat burners, and I teach you how to do that in here. And it's so important. I've been saying that for years. I've written articles for years on how to become a better fat burner. At Lifespot.com, there's over 800 articles and videos online for free about how to reboot and reset your digestion. In Eat Wheat, I take you specifically down the road with regard to grains and food intolerances and allergies. Okay, So here we go. Um, Let's start with um, let's start with the processed foods and what they did. <clears throat> These hard to digest fats, what they did is they're well they're indigestible. It's like not it's like not washing your stove from all the grease for years and years and years, twenty years of grease and never washing it. It's going to be a, a, not a pretty picture on your stove. Same thing happens into your liver. Your liver is full of fat. You ever stick your hand in the liver? when you do like dissection, it's just full of grease. And if that grease is good grease, there's good and bad grease, right? Good and bad fats. 
And if the bad fats can congest your liver and cause real problems, fatty livers, which are epidemic, gallbladder disease, number one surgery on the planet today is gallbladder surgeries. What the heck is going on with our gallbladders and our livers? Nobody seems to be talking about that. What happens when you take these indigestible fats is they, they congest your liver and your liver function and your ability to make adequate bile. Your liver makes bile, stores it in your gallbladder, and your gallbladder concentrates that bile 15 to 20 times. 15 to 20 times concentrated bile. That's for the brains of a woolly mammoth in one sitting. That's what that kind of fat is for, okay? None of us eat that kind of fat, need that kind of bile. We have a gallbladder. For most of us, the low-fat diet, the processed oil diet that doesn't trigger bile release because the body doesn't recognize that as even digestible, the liver and the gallbladder become congested. The bile becomes thick. When the bile becomes thick, bile regulates pooping. Bile is like a, no, you don't go to the bathroom well when you don't have good bile flow. You get constipated. Bile is like a Pac-Man, gobbles up toxins in your liver, right? And when the bile is not moving very well, you, you, you don't clean and scrub your intestinal skin very well. You don't gobble up the, bad, the good fats and deliver them and get rid of the bad fats. You don't. Everything just stays, you get those fats get absorbed into the blood and become real, real problems, okay? So, so the bile, but it also, what the bile does is it's a buffer for the acids in your stomach. And as you all know, your stomach makes hydrochloric acid, and that hydrochloric acid breaks down proteins like gluten and dairy, like casein. If you don't have really good hydrochloric acid, you're not going to break down those proteins very well. Red meat, nuts, seeds, shrimp, all the peanuts, nuts and seeds, wheat, dairy, they're all proteins that cause these allergies. That's because our digestive fire got dialed down. It can get dialed down from stress. It can dial down from the microbes that get killed from the pesticides. It can get dialed down from poor bioflow. Years, 60 years, by the way, of processed foods. Not really very healthy for us. 55 years or so. Um, so, so the bile has become thicker and more viscous, and the liver and the gallbladder have become congested, so we just take the, the gallbladder out, again, kick the real problem down the road, never really addressing the real problem. So, here are some things that might be linked to uh, liver gallbladder or gallbladder bile issues. When you eat fatty foods, you don't feel well. Greasy fried food, you get nauseous. The food just sits in your tummy. When the food and the acids sit in your tummy too long, the acids can burn, cause heartburn, indigestion, gas, bloating, reflux. All those things are generally due to lack of good bile flow. So some strategies for your bile flow, okay? And I write about this in the book in way more detail, but beets are some of my favorites. Artichokes, some of my favorites. Celery, beets, well, beets, apples, and celery, they make a great juice, by the way. You can juice it, have that, not like as a meal, but that juice can be as part of a meal to increase bile flow while you're having that food, right? Pretty cool. Artichokes, great bile movers. Fenugreek increases bile flow by 75% in one study. Fenugreek tea, really, really simple, right? So those are some strategies. Beets, apples, celery, fenugreek, artichokes, all great. What are called dogs, and they increase bile flow. They've been around for a long, long time in natural medicine. Um, time we understood that and started to use that because we need that because our liver and gallbladders have become problematic. And that liver congestion is directly due to diabetes. Liver congestion predisposes us to type 2 diabetes. Liver congestion and bioflow issues predispose us to the inability to, get, to burn fat and therefore we get obese and we become toxic. Liver congestion and bioflow issues directly linked to depression because we're not emulsifying the good fats and deliver them to our brain so the brain lacks the good fats it needs and gets overwhelmed with bad fats. 
And of course, the liver directly into bile flow is directly linked to the ability to break down hard to digest proteins. And the whole $16 billion a year industry of gluten-free is caused by this thing that happened 60 years ago, and we're still digging out of that today. And the crazy part of this is that the, the replacement foods that they gave us for the, for, the, uh, for the gluten, which is so bad, are gluten-free foods which are highly processed. And it's highly processed foods that have caused this problem in the first place. So my goodness, what we've done is we've created this processed food thing that's destroyed our health in so many ways. And now we're blaming gluten on the problem and we're giving us processed foods for the cure. This is not a smart thing to do. And it's a $16 billion a year industry. So it's not like all of us are like, ah, this is some weird thing that it's, it's 16 billion a year. It's a lot. It's, 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 in, it's on our radar. Here in Boulder, Colorado, you get a ticket if you're found eating gluten. Eating a gluten muffin, they're like, whoa, wait. You have gluten in that, ma'am? Uh, sorry, this is a gluten-free zone. <laughs> you can't do that. So we have to stop the craziness, right? The insanity. Um, so that's what you do for your liver and your gallbladder. Now, go upstream and your stomach said, hey, man, they don't make any bile down there anymore. I don't know what happened. And if I make all this acid that I need to break down the wheat and the dairy, I'm going to cause heartburn So, because I, I don't have anybody to buffer that acid, which is the bile, right? So I'm either going to hold on to all this acid, wait for the bile to kick in and cause heartburn or an ulcer. And over time, the body just gets smart and says, you know what? I'm not going to make the acid anymore. So it starts to dial down the production of the acid. And now we have low digestive fire. So I'm going to give you five spices that have been shown to reboot digestive strength and reboot the coordination of all the digestion. In our culture, even in natural medicine, we say you take digestive enzymes, take hydrochloric acid, take bile salts, and we do the job for the bile with bile salts. We do the job for the stomach with hydrochloric acid. We do this job of the, of the pancreas and, the, uh, and with pancreatic and digestive enzymes. Why can't we make our own enzymes? Why can't we make our own bile? Why can't we make our own stomach acid? Why do we need these pills and powders to do it for us? Right? I mean, right? We keep doing this crazy thing. We take natural things to do the job for the body. Why don't we just get the body to do what it was designed to do? This drives me crazy, as you can see. And that's why I wrote Eat Weed, because I just, I, I, really because I feel like we're going down a road that was so dangerous 60 years ago. Turned out the research were paid by, by the sugar industry. Harvard researchers paid by the sugar industry to blame heart disease on fat when the research was showing it was, was a sugar issue. And today, the issue is sugar, not wheat. And we're deflecting, again, the cause, which is sugar, excess sugar in our diet, which we really, really like from millions of years of genetics from that first taste of mother's milk. We've been trying to get more sugar into our diet. And when you process these foods, their glycemic index goes up and it causes the problem. It's not the whole foods. No, none of these whole foods are really the culprit. It's the, it's the processed nature of these foods that make them act taste and smell more like sugar. So here we go. So these five spices to reboot function are ginger, cumin, coriander, fennel, and cardamom. Ginger, cumin, coriander, fennel, and cardamom. Now, where the cool thing is, when you take each of those spices and you look at the research on them, and I have, they're all amazing for your digestion. 
when you put them all together, something magical happens. This is what I love about Ayurvedic medicine. What I love about ancient wisdom and modern science, which is what we do here at LifeSpot.com, is we write about ancient wisdom and modern science. And in ancient wisdom, they knew that if you take turmeric and you mix it with black pepper, 16 to 1, it increases the absorption by 2,000%. Herb after herb after herb, formulation after formulation, taking whole herbs, not extracts of herbs, acting, taking out the active chemical and making the active chemical stronger. It's a drug. Taking whole plants, grinding them up, putting them together in a time-tested way that's been done for a thousand years, increases bioavailability and effectiveness. For an article recently proving that turmeric, I know I'm off topic here, turmeric in its whole form, not the curcumin, the extract, outperforms turmeric significantly. There's over 300 constituents in turmeric that are active and very, very active medicinally for the body. We take out curcumin, one of those, which takes, makes up 5% of that turmeric plant. There's 95% of that plant left over. We just throw it away. This is the craziness that we have in our culture. So when Ayurveda said, take the whole plant, give it a little black pepper, boom, increases the absorption by 95%. And there's all kinds of health things. I've written about that article. That article is amazing, I thought. There's amazing science there to support that. So when you take ginger, cumin, coriander, fennel, and cardamom, I have a formula called Gentle Digest, which is low spices. It reboots the function and the strength of production, producing your own digestive acid in your stomach, your own bile, your own duodenal and pancreatic enzymes, increases lymphatic flow, which we'll talk about in just a second, that drains your intestinal skin. And you can take them, people would use them for spicing their food for thousands of years. Marco Polo was all about that. We don't spice our food anymore. We don't use these traditional practices of cooking certain ways anymore. All that ancient wisdom sort of gone. And now we eat sort of bland food, salt and pepper. It's a problem. So, so that's one way to reboot the upper digestion in the book. Uh, eat wheat, I talk about many ways to accomplish that. Many, many, many ways to get the upper digestion tricked. And I talk about how to troubleshoot when you have high acid or low acid. It's a little bit much for this discussion, but it's all detailed in the book step by step by step. The next part of your intestinal tract is your intestinal skin and the lymphatic system that drains the intestinal skin and the, um, the bugs, the microbes that line your intestinal skin. Studies have shown that you're aging is linked to three things, the health of your intestinal skin, the epithelium of your intestinal wall, the bugs that live on it, and the lymph that drains that intestinal skin. So we have to know how to deal with the lymph, get the bugs back, and get the intestinal skin back. So the intestinal skin is really important. I have a, I write about in this book, there's three uh, soluble fibers, which are really good in the winter, by the way, because they're slimy. Marsh. You take those herbs, tablespoons of each of those herbs, a quart, strain it through a metal strainer, put it in a jar, and take tablespoon doses and coat your whole intestinal tract like that Pepto-Bismol commercial and coat the whole thing with this natural prebiotic slime. Protect your whole intestinal wall, okay? And it is a magical formula to start from scratch and reboot the health and, re and repair of your intestinal skin from your mouth all the way down to the bottom. Really, really important. I love, love, love this formula. It's called the Slippery Elm Prebiotic Formula. We have it. But like I said, it's on my website. You can, you can do it yourself as well 
just a little hard to find the chopped version of those herbs versus the ground version. And the ground makes mud, doesn't make the tea that we want to use medicinally. You take that throughout the day for about a month or two, and you're in great shape. Then, once you have this prebiotic slime, you can actually lay down some good bugs, right? Some good bacteria. You can reboot the bacteria. And that you do uh, with colonizing versus transient bugs. Colonizing versus transient. Transient ones, they eat them, they work great, the, the probiotics, but they go right through you. Colonizing are strains, very specific strains, like, like Bifidobacteria lactis HN019, a very specific strain that shows that it sticks to the intestinal wall and creates new permanent resonance. And that's what we need in our gut, is more diversity, more new guys that are doing really healthy things versus a whole gut of spectator microbes that don't do anything good or bad, but they take up all the valuable real estate. And that's truly what happens in our gut in the West. We've got to get rid of the bad guys, the spectator guys, and repopulate with new guys. And that's what I use for that. Um, and we have a formula called Gut Revival that I love for that. It reboots and heals the intestinal skin along with the prebiotic slime. You take both those guys for about a month or two to reboot the bugs. And then you got the lymph on the outside of the gut wall. And that lymph gets congested. So here's what happens. Stay with me here. We're almost done. I know I could go on forever with this, and I hope I'm not boring you. Uh, but I want to get to your questions too as well. Um, when the stomach acid breaks down, when the bile becomes congested, the hard to digest proteins in the wheat, the gluten, the gluttons, the, the casein in the dairy, it doesn't get broken down very well. It, those proteins become too big to get into the bloodstream and the upper digestion, and they get uptaken into the collecting ducts of your lymphatic system. And this is what causes allergies, proteins getting into your lymph, into the collecting ducts via a sort of leaky gut syndrome, but it's the collecting ducts of the lymph that cause the problem. And now your lymph system, stay with me here, is a delivery system for fats for energy throughout the day. If that lymph system is congested and the body says, I'm trying to get these fats, the triglycerides, to the cells to give the body energy, and that road is blocked with all this gluten, which are too big, and the casein and the hard to digest proteins, because they weren't broken down properly, it'll congest those lymphs. And then the lymph will say, hey, I got all this fat here, I'm trying to deliver some energy, so what I'm gonna do is I'm just gonna push it out side the intestinal tract lymphatic vessels into the fat around the belly and store it there for a while until, the, until you guys get the, the road opened again because the road for delivering that energy is closed. So I'm going to store it in the fat around the belly. And it, literally there's science to show that's exactly what happens. The fat ooze out of the lymphatic vessels into the fat around the belly and give us belly fat. And waiting for the body to say, okay, road's open, get that fat back and deliver energy. But when that's not happening, you get tired, you get lethargic, you get tired, you, you become, you know, fatigued. That lymphatic system is also taking toxins out of your body. That's not happening either. That lymphatic system is also carrying your entire immune system. So the immune system is stuck in traffic. So you become more vulnerable to immune compromising issues. Stay with me here. But the brain, they found, drains about three pounds of toxic chemicals and plaque out of your brain every single year. And the inability to do that, get the lymphs out of your brain very well, is directly linked to poor digestion and lymphatic congestion around your belly. So when the belly becomes a problem, you can't digest wheat and dairy, you have allergic issues, brain fog issues, rashes out through the skin lymph, brain fog because the brain lymphs can't drain. All these symptoms of the brain syndrome are due to Congested lymphatic issues due to poor digestion have nothing to do with the gluten. That gluten is supposed to be broken down way upstream, and the intestinal skin has been broken down to let this stuff go through in an overwhelming amount. 
Yes, take weed out of your diet, you solve some of those problems, but you don't fix the problem, the real problem, because there's toxic chemicals that are going in the same pathways. So we just give ourselves false hope, a false sense of security by, by just dealing with the symptoms. I hope, you may, hope this is making sense. So we have to get the lymphatic system to drain the brain and the intestinal skin to heal. So that the slippery elm tea probiotic to heal the intestinal skin, reboot the probiotics that live along those villi to protect them so those proteins don't get through. Because some of the gluten is going to go undigested all the way down to your large intestine and feed the short-chain fatty acids. But if the gut's intestinal skin has been irritated, then those gluten proteins will get into the lymph and cause problems. So it's, it all depends on us doing what we're designed to do, which is digest well. Right? And as we get older, we see that people don't do that very well. We start to shrivel up and wrinkle, and we don't get big and strong anymore. So when these brain lymphs get congested, it's, and the science shows that those brain lymphs are linked to when they're congested, and it drains three pounds of toxic chemicals and plaque out of your brain every year when you sleep at night. And they're directly linked to anxiety, depression, cognitive decline, infection, inflammation, and autoimmune conditions. These are all the things that everybody says is caused by wheat. But they're not. Any type of congestion in the brain lymphatics will cause these concerns. Autoimmune conditions, the epidemic of our time. Anxiety, depression, the epidemic of our time. Inflammation, the, inflammation, the epidemic of our time. These are all caused by lymphatic congestive issues. Where does the lymph system start? Inside your intestinal tract. Why does it break down? Poor upper digestion. These proteins have come down and toxins have come down undigested. Rip your guts to shreds. Your bile is like a Pac-Man supposed to gobble this stuff up and get rid of it. But if it's not there, the bile is stuck in traffic in your liver and gallbladder. The bile isn't there to gobble up those bad guys. They rip your guts to shreds. We got real problems. This is all fixable stuff. Take the processed food out of your diet. That eat organically. And now we take these beets and the, and, the, and, the, and the apples and the celery and the artichokes and, and we take the spices for digestion and we heal and repair the intestinal skin with slippery elm and the right type of probiotics and we decongest our lymphatic system with anything that is red that will make your shirt red color like blackberries or blueberries or strawberries or, or cranberries or beets. All of them, the things that dye your skin are natural antioxidants that decongest your lymphatic system. Herbs like red root and mangista, herbs that I love, turmeric, herbs that I love, all great lymphatic movers. I talk about many, many, many of those in my book about how to do that. And then in the end of the book, I teach you how to do a, a, a digestive lymphatic wheat detoxification. I teach you how, how to deal with the whole sugar issue, which is really the big problem. So sugar belly, not wheat belly. And I take you step by step through that. So I hope you enjoyed this a little discussion. I like to open up to questions right now. Um, if you have any questions about this, you can press star two. I'll talk to you directly, or um, or uh, I'm going to start answering some questions. And sorry if I was a little bit long-winded here, um, but again, you find most of that information in Eat Wheat, which is, comes out tomorrow. I'm so excited. It's it's, it's such a um, there's 600 scientific references in this book. Um, you know. Uh, there's a lot, of, a lot of compelling evidence to kind of support what we're talking about here. Okay, uh, eating gluten causes bloating and gas for me. Even if I could fix my digestive system to digest gluten, should I still eat it if it's not meant 
for the human body. Well, I don't know that wheat is not meant for the human body. I totally understand eating gluten causes gas and bloating for you, and I would love to help you fix that and fix the cause, but wheat has been, been eaten by human bodies for, well, as long as humans have been around, which is 200,000 years, but early humans for 4 million years. Hard to ignore that science, but nobody tells you that. Nobody tells you that, unfortunately. Um, anyway, I can go on about that, but I'm going to try not to get off topic again. So please, you know, like I, I think I went through the process of how to do that today, and I hope that answers your question. If you don't, please email me uh, so we can kind of get to the bottom of that or, or, or follow the troubleshooting process and eat wheat. Uh, what's the best type of bread to eat? Great question. The best type of bread to eat is bread that has ingredients that say organic whole wheat. And in America, whole wheat means whole wheat. It means that the bran, the germ, and the endosperm are all in there together in the proportions that God made them, or, or if you believe in God. Um, but that's important, that all of them are there in whole wheat. In, in Canada, it doesn't mean that. But in America, it does mean that. Um, so, so uh, whole wheat, organic whole wheat, salt, water, and organic starter. Anytime you see cooked oils, cooked safflower oils, cooked expeller, pressed organic, the best, anytime you cook it and put it in the oven, it's, it's rancid. Don't eat anything with oils, because what that oil is there to extend shelf life for the stuff lays on the shelf forever. You want to avoid that like the plague. Any ingredient you've never heard of, avoid like the plague. And I think you've all heard of organic whole wheat, salt, water, and an organic starter. And that's the only kind of bread that I eat, and I would highly recommend that's what you find. There's artists and bakeries everywhere. Whole Foods has some of those. You've got to look at their label. Some of their bread doesn't put oils in it. A lot of it does. So they, don't, they haven't quite figured that part out yet. Um, because people like bread that lasts for a week or two or three. And the reality is, is that's not how bread was. Bakers used to bake bread every morning, right, in the old days. And you go to the bakery and get your bread every morning. And by the evening, that baguette was hard as rock, or by the next day. You know, so, so be aware that um, we are eating a processed food that was designed for one thing, to extend shelf life, not to help us digest it, okay? And microbes in our body won't eat those oils. And since we're 90% microbe, and you're eating foods with a bunch of oils in it that microbes won't eat, that's why the stuff that sits on the counter never goes bad. It just, it just gets squishy, stays squishy for weeks, sort of crazy. What do you say about gallatin destabilizing the gut lining and being a primary cause of leaky gut? What about the microtoxins in wheat? Okay, so the gallatins, like I said, are, there are many enzymes in your mouth, stomach, small intestine, large intestine that actually break down the gallatin specifically. There's good science that I write about in the book to prove that. Nobody tells you that, right? But, and, so those are very, very important. If, and if you have weak digestion upstream and those proteins go undigested in an overwhelming fashion with overwhelming toxins and overwhelming pesticides, they will break down the intestinal because there are studies that show that whole wheat versus refined wheat actually repairs the intestinal skin and reduces leaky gut syndrome. I can send you that study. Um, so, you know, how do we ignore the science when it says the opposite of what people are telling you about? Because there isn't science. There is science that says that maybe refined foods will cause these problems, but not whole foods. Show me a study that says whole wheat causes these problems. I'd love to see that in healthy people, not in, in celiac folks. People who are celiac, that's a different animal. They're already in an immune, autoimmune response. So they've already, caught it, they've already created this hypersensitivity issue. And they definitely need to reboot their digestive strength. They definitely need to increase lymphatic flow and, 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 and help them be less um, sensitive to other foods, not just wheat. 
and, and maybe they never eat wheat again, but, but boy, the, one of the issues with people with, with, uh, with uh, celiac is they have severe nutritional deficiencies that go way beyond wheat. They just go on gluten-free, they stop eating gluten, they have nutritional deficiencies that plague them. Well, what does that mean? That means they're not delivering or, or delivering the nutrition that they need, and it, just taking wheat out of the diet shouldn't cause such a nutritional deficiency. We have to fix the digestion for them too, okay? Whether you eat wheat or not, that's not the issue, okay? Um, if you have several autoimmune conditions by getting, uh, and by getting gluten out of the diet, they have improved some symptoms, what would you recommend? If you have gluten intolerance, and you feel bad when you eat it, and it's linked to autoimmune conditions, and they're better when you eat it, for sure, like I said, don't eat wheat right away, but please don't stop there. Let's fix the problem. The problem is that that wheat is not being digested and other things are not being digested. Other proteins are not being digested. Environmental pollutants are not being digested. And that's going to take us out down the road. We're giving ourselves a false sense of security that, oh, I, my, my, I took the major stressors out of my system, but those stressors are actually immune stimulators when you're healthy in proper amounts. I didn't talk about the seasonal nature of wheat either. We've been eating wheat for 30, three times a day for 30, 40 years, our whole life, right? Wheat is harvested in the fall for winter eating. There's an enzyme called amylase, which is, increases in the fall and the winter, and it decreases in the spring and the summer. In our body, our body makes more amylase, specifically designed for breaking down wheat, in the fall and the winter when wheat is harvested, and it's not there in the spring and the summer. People who have lack of amylase in their system, they're, they're, they, it's linked to what's called Baker's asthma. They have an inability to handle and tolerate wheat. So, Sort of interesting, right? Amylase was a, a genetic adaptation that we created, they think, around a million or two million years ago. And that was when we started eating more starches. And there's a lot of science to say that it was starches and meats that increased our double or tripled our brain size. It wasn't just meat alone. So there's pretty interesting new emerging science that support that. And a lot of that inability for, for getting starches was... Uh, from the amylase enzyme that we genetically acquired somewhere in our early human evolution. Kind of sort of, I think, very interesting. Um, suggesting again that we had, a, had, a, had an enzyme we adapted to. We genetically got that enzyme specifically for carbohydrates one to two million years ago. Why did we have that enzyme? Because we didn't eat any carbohydrates? No, we got that enzyme because we did eat carbohydrates. That's why you get the enzymes for carbohydrates, right? You don't evolve to get something that you don't eat. Um, so, yeah, what I said is let's take step-by-step step to reboot the digestion, take the wheat out of the diet for a while, and then when we start seeing other symptoms getting better, we can begin to you know, start to reintroduce other hard-to-digest foods again and, and, and perhaps really good whole wheat again. I, I, I wrote the book partly because I've been helping people reboot digestion for 30 years, and I found that people actually get better. They can eat wheat again. That's why I call the book Eat Wheat because I watched that happen time and time and time again. And then when I watched the culture go, $16 billion a year of wheat, of gluten-free processed foods, the $16 billion a year is gluten-free processed foods. That just scared me, you know? It just, it just scares me. Um, and intact, uh, are intact and fermented whole wheat grains easier to digest? Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, I mentioned the study on sourdough bread um, how it reduces, it renders the bread literally gluten-free. But that bread takes three days to bake, where the regular bread in the store in the supermarket takes two hours to bake, sometimes in less than that. So yes, 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 and, I, and that study is in my book in detail. 
I have Hashimoto's disease. I've been gluten-free for almost four years. One reason that I've, that I've discovered every time I lunch, I was incapacitated with exhaustion. My doctor recommended gluten-free diet to low, um, could lower my antibodies. They did drop, and now I am not exhausted at lunch. I am, I, am I to believe that gluten is okay or people are supposed to make their own bread every day? I do understand your idea that digestion is a problem, not the wheat. I take a high amount of probiotics. I know that there are digestive enzymes. Please advise. I, I love, thank you so much for this question. It's such a great question. Um, the reason why you get exhausted after a meal is because, like I just described to you, those undigested proteins were going into your lymphatic system. Your lymphatic system is designed for in-between meal energy. And, if, and after a meal, you're supposed to get this big surge of fats to deliver energy. And if that fat road is, blo is blocked, you're not going to deliver the fats as energy. You're going to crash and burn and have a food coma as a result. So what that tells me is that the skin of your intestinal tract has been broken down. It's not about for you eating wheat or not eating wheat. It's about getting the system to, be, to get your lymphatic system decongested, get your intestinal skin decongested or repaired and healed, turn your digestive system on, increase bioflow, do all these things, and then from there you can choose to eat wheat or not eat wheat. Do you have to bake bread yourself every day? Um, well, I mean, no. Uh, there are hopefully artisan bakeries that do it properly and they're popping up all over the place. I do have two really cool sourdough bread recipes in the book that you can start to play with and practice with. Um, so, so uh, you know, like, again, I'm not saying that we have to eat wheat. There's other grains that I think provide hard-to-digest lectins that will keep our immune system strong. I don't think wheat is such the most important grain. Um, I, think, uh, I think some of that might depend on your genetics, but in your case, with, you know, with the Hashimoto's, and I totally get why that makes you feel better, because you're taking the lymphatic blockers out of the system. What about decongesting your lymph, decongesting your brain? I've written article after article after article about how to decongest the brain lymphs. Uh, so most of that's in the book, how to reboot digestive strength. So I would just highly suggest to go back, go through this process of rebooting digestion, and then decide whether we should eat wheat or not down the road. And chances are you'll be able to tolerate a little bit of really good quality wheat in season with no issues whatsoever. But boy, just taking the wheat out is a symptomatic relief and it's great, but there's more to do. And, and, and 20, 30 years from now, that more to do will matter way more than it matters today. And that's the thing. You know, we want to have not what we call dependent longevity or healthy only for taking a whole bunch of herbs and medicines to keep ourselves going. I'm also interested in that my husband's family is Chinese and they eat tons of wheat in dumplings, noodles, and buns after a meal with the above. I'm really tired. What gives? Uh, again, I have the same Hashimoto's as issues. Uh, you know, I didn't really know that Chinese food ate that much wheat, but uh, the first book, this book has been written, has been the, the rights for, for China. They just bought the rights to have this book in Chinese, so I guess they're really worried about their wheat as well. You know, same rules apply uh, here. You know, I get that when you eat wheat, you're really tired. I really, really, truly do. I've been treating people with wheat intolerance and gluten intolerance and dairy intolerance for 30 plus years. I, I, I am not in any way suggesting that what you have doesn't, is unreal or, 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 or not the wheat. The wheat is, is making you feel bad, but not the symptoms. So I would again just take you down that road of troubleshooting digestion. So I will not just, I hope I'm answering your questions. Um, are you in favor of eating fermented foods when, uh, when we don't like the raw, the flavor, raw beets, turmeric, amla, 
uh, rutabaga, cabbage. I love fermented foods, and they're winter foods, right? <coughs> the fermented foods were harvested in the, in the winter. Um, no, scratch that. The fermented foods, the vegetables, were fermented in the winter to make them last through the winter, to get people more food in the winter. Milk, dairy, was fermented by you know, early humans to allow them to live in the Alps. And, and they had salt in Salzburg, and they would rub salt on their cheese, and they would make that big skin around it and make it last longer for the winter. But they, they would make cheese, which naturally ferments the milk and lowers the, lact, the, the, the milk sugar, the lactose. It low, it, the, the fermenting process reduces the casein. And cheese basically is a, is a lactose-free, casein-free, very easy-to-digest substance, which is very, very healthy for us. But again, in small Quantities. All the fermented foods were very acidic. It's lacto, lactic acid fermentation. That's the process. It's lactic acid. Acid heats you up, which in the winter is great, but in the summer, particularly if your body type is very fiery and very pitta and very aggravated and gets heated, overheated, and acidified very easily, you're taking lots of fermented food, 20 ounce bottles of kombucha in the summertime to cool you down, does the exact opposite of cool you down. It, just, it acidifies you in a major way. Um, so be careful with our new infatuation and love affair with fermented foods. Even the fermented food experts will always tell you small condiment-sized portions that are part of the meal. In India, they had a little bit of yogurt at the end of the meal to help give you that fermented food, to give you that, that probiotic support in that regard. Um, uh, let's see here. Hope that all makes sense. Um, let me see if we have any questions. Um, um, a couple more questions here. Um, I live on the coast of the equator where we just have two seasons, winter when it's hot and rainy, and summer when it's warm but not rainy but still humid. How does the amylase production apply to our seasons? It's a great question. I don't have any idea. Um, we do know that when the weather gets a little bit colder, and my guess is that the temperature in the winter when it's hot and rainy is different than when it's warm and, and, and but not rainy. So, you know, even when the body gets used to these very subtle shifts in, in the environment, you see these, these, these rhythmical shifts of enzymes. And also I would look into when these foods were traditionally harvested. You know, wheat was traditionally harvested in the fall for the winter eating. In the tropics, it's generally usually... Um, usually before the dry season, you're going to get a very wet grain because um, gluten is a very wet grain. Um, before the um, wait, yeah, before the dry season, you're going to get a wet grain. Before the wet season, you get dry grains like maize or corn. Corn is a very dry grain. So if you look historically, corn was harvested in the spring before the rainy seasons in Central America. Not in the fall like we have it here. We just hybridize the heck out of everything to make it harvest when we wanted to, but that's not the way it was. So I would dig in and look locally and see, can maybe go back and see when those foods and those grains were originally harvested, and that's probably the best bet, best way to figure that out. Are digestive enzymes helpful for digesting wheat? Uh, what kind of recommended protein, dairy, legumes? Thank you. Yes, digestive enzymes will help you do it, but remember, your pancreas has digestive enzymes, your liver makes bile. Okay, this is the exact opposite. Um, anyway, and your liver makes bile, and it, it has a little tube that carries the bile to the small intestine. Before it goes into the small intestine, it joins up with the pancreatic duct tube that carry the enzymes 
and the bile into the intestinal tract together in like 91% of the people. So if the bile ducts are congested, then you automatically, the pancreatic ducts are congested. So we don't make our pancreatic enzymes. And a lot of natural experts, you know, natural docs will say, we don't make enzymes as we get older, so you gotta take digestive enzymes. And I've been saying for years, and I've written articles about this, we make them, but the liver and the gallbladder have been congested for years, and the bile ducts are congested, so the pancreatic ducts can't get the enzymes where they need to go. So we take enzymes and we just do the job for, for us. Why don't we just clean out the tubes and get the pancreatic enzymes in the bile to get where it wants to go and get our body to do it itself, right? Seems logical to me. Well, in practice, it's been working clinical for almost more than 30 years. So seems to be, make more sense than to take digestive enzymes. So that's what I would prefer. But if you're going to take digestive enzymes, I like natural ones, like papaya enzymes and natural ones, not just you know synthetic amylases and, and uh, lipases and things like that. I like natural things the very best we can. And for temporary relief, no worries, no problem, not any harm at all, but they're not fixing the real cause. And we can do that with herbs. Like I said, the five spices work really, really well in that regard. Uh, I meant IBS uh, from too much bile. I think this question is from here. Um, does too much bile cause IBS? The cardiologist still blaming saturated fat on my heart disease. Remember, uh, the low-fat vegan diet seemed to help President Clinton comment on that. Um, uh, yeah. Um, when you have a diet of way too many processed foods and way too many bad fats, a low-fat diet is going to help the body clean things out and can be very, very beneficial. And a vegan diet can be very, very healthy. I have no qualms about that. And a vegetarian diet can be. You know, these diets have been around for thousands of years for the most part. And we have to just make sure that they're, make sure that they're balanced. Um, can too much bile, um, can IBS be caused by too much bile? Generally, the problem is not too much bile. Generally, the problem is caused by a lack of fiber in the diet. Hunter-gatherers ate about 100 grams of fibers per day, according to the science, which is pretty accurate. Americans eat about 15, maybe 20 grams of fiber per day, so more than five times the fiber ancient humans had. And what fiber does, when you eat some fatty food, the, the bile gets shunted into the intestinal tract, and the fiber hooks onto it, and takes it to the toilet. Remember, the bile was in your liver, gobbling up, globbing up, Pac-Manning, gobbling up all these toxins and chemicals and heavy metals and fatty things. Goes into your small intestine, gobbles up, cleans out your intestinal villi, scrub, 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 clean, 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 hooks out some fiber, takes it to the toilet. If you don't have enough fiber in your diet, which most Americans don't, up to 93% of that bile can get reabsorbed, toxins in tow, back to your liver. That is not a pretty picture and it congests and dumps all that yuck back into your liver, into your blood, into your arteries, and creates all these problems. This is not a pretty picture. So that's what happens. So it's not the excess bile, it's the lack of fiber to take the bile into the toilet. Then we keep taking that bile back to the liver, and the science shows that we reuse that old bile 17 times before we actually discard the bile, if we don't have a fiber to take it to the toilet. 17 times, it's like washing your dishes in the same dirty bath water 17 days in a row, or times whatever, it's a lot. But we're not, that was that 17 times thing was designed if you were starving and there were no woolly mammoths for days and you were starving as an ancient human. And you could reuse the bile to keep delivering and emulsifying fats and help, help the body keep delivering fats the very, very best way it could. 
most of us have liver gallbladders that are congested, that don't use the bilostasia or dormant and congested, and causes liver pain and indigestion and heartburn and these kinds of things. So I would say no, that too much bile doesn't cause IBS, too, too little fiber to take the bile to the toilet, and having toxic bile circulating that's not really functional is, is, is rendering the intestinal tract with too little effective bile. Hope that makes sense. Great question, though. Uh, and I write about that in the book in detail and give you the science behind that. It's pretty crazy. Um, based on my understanding, if you buy wheat bread, it is legally allowed to use processed white flour and wheat brown mixed with together in proper proportions and still labor at natural whole wheat. Uh, that, I don't think, is true. And if that is true, I would love to if you could share that science with me, but I've dug into this, and that's not the way the FDA rules are written. I'd love to see the science. Please do send it to me so I can look into that, and I will write articles, blog about that if that's not the case. So please do. I would very much look, be interested in, in, in looking at that. Um, in Canada, rules are different, but here in America, uh, that's not my understanding, and I, and I read the laws, the FDA laws, the best I could, so I'd love to know more about that. Do you believe in the blood type diet? I'm a type O, and Dr. Derry says I should not eat blackberries, which I love. I said that? Um, uh, which I love, uh, and strawberries. Um, I don't know if I would have said not eat blackberries. Um, sure, if they're in season, blackberries will sort of, they're very astringent, more the most astringent berries, so they will maybe make you a little more constipated, so I might have said a, talked about that. I do believe in the blood type diet as a temporary thing. However, I just haven't seen the blood type diet really work for people long term. I think whenever you give people a list of food, here's what you should eat and here's what you should not eat, what people end up doing is craving what's not on their list. For a little while, any type of a restricted diet initially is going to make people feel better, generally speaking, but then they start, soon start to crave the diet that's not on their list. So I, I think that the premise may be actually valid, but I don't like the idea of only eating these and don't eating those because people are like, you tell a kid don't eat candy or eat the cookie, they're going to eat it. And eventually we begin to crave what's not on our list and that undermines the success of the diet. So I like a more, uh, what I publish every month, as you all know, is a, a seasonal diet uh, called the Three Season Diet Challenge. It's a free monthly eating guide with recipes and grocery lists and superfoods for free for January, for February, for March, for April, for free. All you do is get download it for free. You, get it, you sign up for it. It comes in your inbox every month. And you get the microbes from the dirt that attaches to the foods that have become our microbiome in every season and how important it is to get the seasonal microbes, which therefore support our ability to eat wheat when it's in season and our ability to eat fruits when they're in season. And that is all tied to our connection to these beautiful circadian rhythms of nature, which many science studies show that we have disconnected ourselves from. So that's not a pretty picture. So hopefully that answers that. Um, once I get the gut bit, the gut bit is white sourdough bread okay? Um, or will it just create the problem again? No, not really. White sourdough bread is probably going to have a whole lot less gluten in it. What happens when you get out your intestines strong? You do have rope again. And you can, when you were young, you were eating white Wonder Bread probably and didn't have problems. So you have rope back, but you want to continue to try to eat whole things, foods in their natural state. So there you can get whole wheat sourdough bread, um, and you can, you can try to get whole foods and try not to get foods that are refined anyway. A little pastry, a little croissant here and there. Once your digestion is strong, you can enjoy life again, break bread again. You don't have to be living in a restricted bubble of what I can and can't eat. And then you have the ability to, you know, enjoy life. But hopefully your preference is to eat whole foods in their natural state. And we just have to demand from our food industry, 
foods that are whole foods, not refined, not processed foods, not loaded with pesticides. That just has to stop because the science is overwhelming and it is killing us. And now we have a $16 billion a year industry that people are blaming gluten and nobody's talking about the processed foods and the pesticides. Anyway, we, gotta, we have to, I think, look at the logic. Um, my understanding is that if I eat whole wheat flour, uh, it can be processed in practical terms. What are, the, what are the wheat products that are not highly processed that I can start to introduce in my diet? Um, you know, if you can get organic whole wheat, one of the ways you really want to do it, you look for ancient grains, stone ground wheat, whole wheat. Uh, you can find in my book, I give you some uh, places to get really good ancient grains Things like that go with ancient grains that are whole wheat, that are stone ground. You can find stuff that is absolutely the purest stuff. You can get good artisan bakeries if you find them locally. Oftentimes, use really the good breads, and you know it's a little bit of a of a discovery um, to, to 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 do that. I even teach you how to make your own bread if you want to do that as well. Um, again, press star two if you want to answer some questions. Um, we are a little bit ooh way over time. I will stick around and answer a few more questions. But thank you all for for listening. If you if you have to go. Um, what about those people who have sadly had their gallbladder removed? Great question. Good news is that your liver makes bile on demand in significant enough proportions to digest the fats that we eat today. That gallbladder was for the brains of a woolly mammoth, and we're not eating that kind anymore. Uh, that was the feast and famine days, and to a certain extent, we don't eat that kind of fat. I think we've evolved not to need that, clearly. Uh, the centenarian people live over 100 years old. They don't eat that kind of fat. They eat a ton of beans at every meal, which gives them the fiber. Beans are the highest fiber food pretty much on the planet. You cannot get the fiber you need to get the bile out of the body, the old bile out of the body, keep your liver making new stuff without having beans in your diet. It just simply can't happen. If you try to get the beans, the fiber just from vegetables, you're going to have the gorilla diet, half your body weight in vegetables per day. Um, so beans are so critically important. Us. And you can get them, you can garbanzo beans and split yellow mung beans are the easiest ones to start with because I know a lot of people don't digest beans very well. But that's part of the problem. And that's one of the things we're going to begin to see as people can begin to digest, hard to digest foods again. Do you discuss how it relates to autoimmunity such as Hashimoto's? Yes. And I do take you step by step through that process and, um, you know, the best I can in the book for sure. And that has to do with lymphatic issues. So I have a, I have an ebook that you get, um, that you can get when you order the book. Through eatweedbook.com, you get it. You get my lymphatic ebook, and that's the autoimmune issue. And you can get that ebook. It's a brand new ebook that I just finished. It has over 100 recipes, uh, studies just on lymphatic flow and how to support that. Um, and you get that as well. You also get the Eat Wheat Supplement, which is over 100 other scientific studies showing that wheat is actually quite beneficial for you, believe it or not, whole wheat. Um, so, um, Okay, so I think I did that. I'm going to um, go to see if I can see if anybody has any questions. There's one question here. Um, Jennifer from Denver, are you there? I am here. Can you hear me? Yes, I can. Thank you. Okay. Hi. Um, so I have a couple of questions. Um, first, you had mentioned earlier in the talk, you were talking about how uh, the group that ate wheat Correctly, but lower rates of inflammation and 
Um, I can't remember exactly what you said. <coughs> well, there were, there, were, there were a couple of studies that I mentioned. One was... People. Yeah, there were a couple of studies that I mentioned. I think one was the, that the people who, ate, who are gluten-free had more mercury, they had less good bugs, less bad bugs, and less killer T cells in their bloodstream than people who actually ate wheat. And there was another study that I mentioned that when you talk about phytic acid, people on the highest phytic acid diet had significantly um, more iron in their blood and less osteoporosis, which are, which are osteoporosis, which are the things that that phytic acid has been you know blamed on. And there are even studies that show that phytic acid reduces inflammation and reduces colon cancer risk and things like that. So I don't know if if that answers your question or not. Well, um, no, what I was curious about was you were saying that compared to, pe- to people who are gluten-free, and I was wondering what came first. So was, um, do people go gluten-free because they had high um, rates of mercury in their system and no. other issues the way they went gluten-free? Or, so this is all measured post, pre and post going gluten-free? I mean, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So the study for the mercury was that they took people, three groups of people. One group was celiac who had been on a gluten-free diet. One group was celiac. They had just been diagnosed. They had not been on a gluten-free diet yet. And one group that was not celiac at all. And the group that was celiac that was on a gluten-free diet for a period of time had four times the mercury of the people who were celiac who had not started the gluten-free diet and people who were simply not celiac who ate wheat. Does that make sense? Pretty good study, actually. One more thing. What's that? It was a pretty interesting study when they did it with the three groups like that. Yeah, that, that is really fascinating. I'd like to read that. Um, my next question was about, um, you know, we've talked a lot about using herbs to stimulate um, digestion and just, you know, raise your digestive fire. What, um, where do you see stress as, you know, part of this whole breakdown of our digestion, oh. gluten intolerance. Do you feel like that's maybe the precipitating factor to all of this or a combination with process, of processed foods and stressful diet or just the processed foods, yeah. um, eating processed foods, eliminating our ability to handle stress? Yeah, no, incredibly, really good question. And the article about the mercury comes out tomorrow morning's email newsletter. So you'll get that research there, okay, Jennifer? So that hopefully will help you. And then her question was really brilliant. What about stress? How much role, what role does stress play on the global breakdown of our digestive system? And it's huge, and I talk about that in the book. I didn't talk about it tonight. But the, the, the nervous system for stress is fight or flight. The nervous system for digestion is called the parasympathetic nervous system. When you relax and eat your food, you would turn on the digestive system. When you're running away from a bear under stress, you turn off the digestive system. So stress is, it plays a huge role in this. And it is a, and to answer your question, Jennifer, it's a combination of the stress, of the pesticides, of the processed foods that have globally broken down our digestion and our ability to detoxify. And yeah, it might sound like a lot, but it isn't really that much if you begin to start to do. The body is incredibly capable of healing itself if we do the right thing. But if we just keep plowing through the body, plowing the body under with stress, eating on the run, gobbling processed food down, non-organic food, 
you know, we keep doing these same things that are hard, well, then we don't dig out. But if we start doing just a few things right, it's amazing how quickly the body heals. Mm-hmm. Okay. That sound- well, thank you so much. I really appreciate all the time spent with us and your wisdom. Thank you. Thank you very much for the call. Everyone, thank you so much for uh, um, sticking with me for this podcast. I know it went on a little bit long. Tomorrow you get a copy of the podcast. Watch the, the David Perlmutter interview. You're not going to want to miss that. The, the, the wheat, uh, the, the eat wheat versus grain brain debate. Just wonderful. Don't forget our next podcast on February 6th with Dr. Bob Quinn, a researcher on ancient grain versus modern refined grains. Really cool stuff. That's coming your way. And I've got lots of this week is we're going to, because the book launches tomorrow is what I'm calling Eat Wheat Week. So lots of really cool research is coming out this week that you'll love. And, and, uh, so please stay tuned for all of that. And, uh, next week we'll get back to regular stuff. Won't be doing so much wheat, 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 but, uh, we're calling it Eat Wheat Week. Wheat, eat wheat week. So, uh, thanks for listening. Uh, and, uh, we'll see you next month with, uh, Dr. Bob Quinn. Have a good night.